helping uh, the preaching minister from the Western Hills Church of Christ in Temple, Texas. Scott has been there since 2001 and has been preaching for them since 2005. My brother moved there before he came, actually, um, Richard, and has been worshiping at that church for many years. His children have grown up there just as my children have grown up here. And uh, he has told me many times, and I've heard, got to hear Scott several times preaching, and so I was very interested in bringing him here on a Wednesday night. Scott is married to Erica, who is a science teacher and unfortunately couldn't join us tonight. His son, his oldest son, joins us tonight. Um, and then he has two twins. He has two twins. How is that possible? He has a set of twins, which I know a lot about. Well, yeah, well, that's, that's the life. He will address the issue of living. How can we be good citizens? Scott, come speak. Tell you, I do uh, appreciate being here and have already known great um, uh, connections to this church through through not only does does Doug's brother and uh, sister-in-law go to my church, but his parents go to my church. And so, if there's any good stories you want to give me to tell mom and dad, I'll be right down here afterwards. And then I just met um, Mr. Cunningham. Where'd you go, Mr. Cunningham? Oh, right, led to singing. I'm sorry. Kind of went past me. His uh, brother goes to um, Western Hills, and two weeks ago we ba- we baptized we baptized um, Levi, and this coming Sunday we're going to baptize Will Cunningham, and uh, just need to be a part of that. Got a chance to hang out with Barry, one of your ministers, as well as Mark uh, earlier today, and you guys have a great staff, and and I hope that you're appreciative of them because that's not true everywhere. That's not true at every church. I wish it were, but it's not. And so I'm grateful to have the chance to know these guys. Doug called me and asked me to talk about this idea of living. You've been going through Ecclesiastes and you've been looking at everything under the sun. And I'm going to see if this works right. We're going to test it right now. Change. Am I not pushing the right thing? What? That's what I was pushing. Okay, so when I pick this up and do this, you're going to push it. Okay, that's... Don't you love modern technology? This is great. Okay, we'll get it worked out. And I'll tell you what, I appreciate the everybody that works in technology at a church because it is always just some kind of gremlin going to pop up. And so my great appreciation for these guys. He asked me to talk about this idea of tearing and mending. Because, let's go ahead and throw the Ecclesiastes passage up. Because in Ecclesiastes, we have Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 3, verse 7. We have this idea that says, It's a time to tear and a time to mend. Doug asked me to focus on this idea of how do we live in a culture, how do we live in a culture where sometimes it seems like what we need to do is we need to tear away from it, and other times we feel this need to be to mend and blend in to it. I start by telling you a story. In my grandfather passed away in nineteen ninety three. And I grew up uh I was uh I grew up in Fort Worth, but my granddad lived in, in Kentucky. And if you remember in 93, 
there was a football team named the Dallas Cowboys that had made the Super Bowl. Anybody old enough to actually remember the Dallas Cowboys making a Super Bowl? Kind of sad to think how long it's been since the Dallas Cowboys. But that year, most of them were out of jail, and so they were able to make... So they're able to make the Super Bowl. So I'm flying to the funeral, and so I'm finishing up college this time, and I'm at ACU, so I drive from Abilene to Fort Worth to get on a plane at DFW. So I'm getting onto a plane, and, and though I'm headed to Kentucky, I'm flying Delta. If you know anything about Delta, you're going to go through Atlanta, Georgia on the way. I don't care where you're flying to, you're going to see Atlanta, Georgia on the way. Well, that's the year the Super Bowl was in Atlanta. And so... We load up this plane, and it's one of those planes that there's five seats wide on one aisle. I'm sorry, three seats wide on one aisle, five seats across the middle, three more seats on the other side. So this this whole plane is 11 seats wide, full of Dallas Cowboy fans. And I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, but I'm talking fans. I mean face-painted I mean, they're on the plane. They're not at the game yet, but their faces are painted on the plane. And they're going crazy and everybody's excited. You know, I'm a little bit of a Debbie Downer because I'm headed to a funeral. But anyway, we're all excited. So we're coming over. We, this plane takes off. Beautiful day. We come around the Atlanta airport. And I'd spent some time in Atlanta. And it was nice to see it from the sky again because you have several landmarks, the biggest of which being Stone Mountain, if you've ever been there. And I'm identifying it from the air. And we circle around the airport and I get to see all that I want to see. And then we circle around the airport again. And then we circle around the airport again. Then we circle around one more time. And then the pilot comes on. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm having difficulty getting the flaps down on the airplane. Now, even if you don't know what the flaps do and you have no concept... If the pilot wants them down, you want them to work. If they're supposed to be up, you want them up. Whatever the pilot wants, you know, I'm kind of going with that guy. Whatever he wants, I'm having a small problem getting the flaps down. Well, that's a big problem to me, but it's a small problem to him. And so he says, we're going to need to land, and I'm going to need a longer runway. So we're going to Orlando, Florida. Now, at the time, if I thought about it, if the Atlanta International Airport doesn't have a long enough runway, I'm starting to wonder what, how long of a runway do we need, like I-20. Can you just take all of it and put the plane down there? My next thought was, my next thought was, well, at least Orlando, are we near the ocean? Is that, is that the, the backup plan we're going to ditch in the ocean? So suddenly I'm actually glad that my seat is a flotation device for the first time in my life. I actually care about that. We come into Atlanta Airport. I mean, excuse me. We come into the Orlando Airport, and as we come in on approach, the pilot comes back on, and he says, "I'm going to have to land a little fast. We've got a small problem. Now we're landing a little fast, a little fast." And he says, "So everybody, you know." This should be fine, but since the flaps can't come down, I can't control the speed of the plane. He didn't say that out loud, but you could tell, you know, because we're landing a little fast. And so we come in, and I had never seen this, and I've flown a little bit in my life. I had never seen this before, but as soon as our wheels were over pavement, he put the plane on the ground. 
I mean, not a hundred yards in, not a hundred feet in, but the second it went from grass to asphalt, the plane was on the ground because he was going to use the entire length of the runway to reduce our speed, which I was for. I look out my window. Well, first of all, that nose touches the ground, and we erupt in applause. I mean, he's our hero now. You know, this this is before the miracle on the Hudson flight, but it might as well have been. You know, we were thinking, you know, he's amazing. I don't care about anything else. You know, he got us on the ground safely. And I start thinking, well, maybe it wasn't that big a deal until I look out my window and the plane is still zipping down the runway. And I look out, and there is the emergency rescue crew from the airport. Lights going. We go zipping past them. I'm wondering, where's the emergency? (laughs) Five trucks come careening out, and they chase our plane down the runway. Until finally he gets the plane stopped, and he comes back on again, and we're cheering his name now. You You know, he's awesome. And... He says, we're going to stay right here because I've stressed out the landing gear. And we need to make sure that it's okay and doesn't catch on fire. And I look at it, and these trucks are doing circles around the plane. And what they're doing is they're looking for sparks now. And they're looking for flames. Well, they finally get us off. And we're all excited to be on, you know, solid land and Mother Earth and all that stuff. Here's the point of the story. It was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day in Dallas. It was a beautiful day in Atlanta. It was a clear day in Orlando. If you had seen the plane flying over from the outside, everything looked perfect. All systems go. Doing exactly what you'd expect to see. From the inside, from the moment the pilot came on and said, we've got a small problem, what do you think we were doing? We were praying. We were stressed. Nobody's just reading a magazine anymore. You know, I mean, nobody's doing that. I mean, everybody's thinking now, what's my relationship with God? You know, where am I? And on the inside, we knew we had a problem. Outside, everything was fine. Here's my suggestion. That is the church's condition right now. From the outside of our buildings, it may look like everything is fine. It may look like everything's at ease. But on the inside, we know that things are not always simple. And we know that things are not always easy, and we're not always at ease. And when it comes to this idea of caring and mending in relationship to our culture, many of us know we may have a problem here. And we're not sure how to fix it. We're zooming along at rapid speed, but we're not sure how subtle everything is. We come across this idea of how do we live in relationship. If you've got your your outlines there, first thing, I think the first point you come to is the one that says says this. Uh, go ahead and give me the next slide. The church lives in an uneasy tension with the culture. And what I want to do today is I want to give us a guiding principle on how the church can interact with the culture, because have you noticed that the volume's pretty loud right now on the wars between culture and the church, and the church does not seem to be an ally or a friend or befriended anywhere in the world. 
anywhere in popular culture, anywhere in the media. Several months ago, I asked my church, I, I made a several cards available, and on the card it said, tell me the topic that you think is off limits to talk about in church. Tell me the things that you think are off limits that we've pushed out of our way. And I got a flood of responses back. And that developed into a sermon series. Well, many of the topics came around this idea, these questions came around this idea, how do we live with our culture? How do we live with people that perhaps we greatly disagree? How do we live with folks that we do not see eye to eye on? How do we be the presence of Jesus even though what we would feel it's either we disagree it's evil, it's sin, it's a choice that we would not make in our lives. How do we come to a place like that? I found out through that process that I had several in my church, and maybe you're facing this too. They're trying to figure out how their children, that are their grown children that are making lifestyle choices that they do not approve, do they have to shun them now? Do they have to cut off the relationship? Is that what God's asked me to do? And they weren't asking these as theory. They weren't asking these as, hey, i got a nice little case study. Let's talk through it because it's fun to debate these things. They were asking because they felt this real uneasy tension between what they sensed that perhaps God was calling them to and the kind of life that He was calling them to and their child that had just come out and told them, Mom, I'm gay. And now they're asking a very serious question. How do we live in this kind of world? What's the call of God on us? And they were asking me. I thought, boy, we need a preacher here, don't we? So I want to give you a guiding principle. I'm not going to be able to answer every single practical matter about how do you live in the culture but I want to give you a principle that I believe God teaches us and that this could at least be a compass as you navigate these waters. And to begin, I need to, I need to paint a pretty broad picture here so we can put the framework around this. A lot of what I hear often when we talk about the church and culture is the church has a certain, certain kind of a bemoan about it that says, I wish we could go back to the... To the what? Good old days. Now, depending on how old you are, you have a different decade for what the good old days are, right? For some of you, it's the 60s. Strange enough, it's the 60s. Some of you, it's the 50s. It's the 40s. 30s. Anybody in here? 1800s? Anybody? Um, you know, but there's this idea that at some point in our past, see, for me, it's the 80s, awesome 80s, you know, there's this time in our past where it was just all nicer. And it just all got along. And somewhere, somebody came along the line and they snuck into our churches and they snuck into our country and they stole the values. And they kind of messed up this little idealistic world that we had. They sort of rocked our world and we don't know really who to blame. We just kind of rant and rave about it now. But somewhere, if we could just all agree to go back to that and you fill in the blank on the calendar and when you think that perfect time was if we could all just get back to that when people really cared about people and we all had the same values and it was right and wrong, it was black and white, it was, you know, 
night and day, whatever it was, everything was clear. And we could just get back there, we'd be okay again. Anybody had those thoughts? Well, I want to go back because I think that's what we need to do. But it's not to the 60s, it's not to the 50s, it's not to the 30s, it's not to the 1800s, it's not even to the first century. But it's all the way back to Genesis 1. It's a place called the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 1, you have this incredible account of God. And what He does is He creates, just with His words, He creates a space. He creates an environment, whether it be the sea or the dry land or the air or the universe. And then He creates the things that will occupy that. He creates the sea and then speaks living creatures into it. He creates the dry land and creates the, creates the creatures for that. And you have this recurring theme every time and God gets done creating at the end of the day. He looks at it and says, now that's good. You've got to wonder when God says it's good. That's pretty good. But that's just not good enough yet because He gets all the way and He creates man. And then He steps back and I don't know if He kind of nudged an angel or something and said, now that's... Your Bible says this, that's very good. And so there's this sense that what God spoke into being, it is good. And I'm not the first one to do this, but let me frame out your entire Bible for you with this idea of three trees. Your Bible can be broken down in the story of three trees. Go ahead and throw me up the, the should be an image of a tree. Back, back, back up, back, giving away all my good stuff. Okay, it's not. Don't, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll skip. We'll skip. We'll get to it in a second. This idea of three trees, and in the tree, in, in the Garden of Eden, there's the first tree, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's only one rule in the Garden of Eden, and you know we were going to mess that up. You know, he says, "Don't eat of it." And yet, Adam is, or Eve is tempted, and then Adam's tempted, and the serpent is crafty, and he's real. And what you have from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 12 is all this that God said was very good coming undone. You have the first murder that occurs. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse until we come to this story where God says that's enough. And He's going to start again, literally. He's going to wipe out the planet. So you have this idea of Noah and the flood. And I know we paint that on the walls of our children's nurseries. But that story is not a children's story. It's about a worldwide apocalypse. And he's starting over. We don't even make it out of that chapter before it all goes bad again. And then you have this assault on the heavens with the Tower of Babel. And God comes in and disperses all the people with the the confusion of languages. And then you have the plan. And God zooms in and meets a guy named Abram. And God's in the habit of changing names. And so Abram becomes Abraham. And through Abraham, He says, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to bless the nations through you. And thus begins His redemption story that leads all the way up to the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes and He lives the perfect life. 
And He's God in the flesh, and He's left the protection of heaven, He's left the glory of heaven, and He dare walk among us. See, we live in a world that's no longer that first tree that everything was perfect in the garden. We live in this fallen world that has a curse to it. And it's all twisted up, and then Jesus comes in the middle of that curse, and He lays down His life, and He goes to that second tree, but it's a tree that's not pretty. It's a wooden Roman cross. And He lays down His life, and the Bible tells us, cursed is anyone that's hung on that tree. But He lays there, lays down His life, not because of His curse, but because of ours. And He offers a way of redemption. And He invites us into this whole new life. But now, for those of us that have adopted Jesus Christ, that have come into Him and connected with that through baptism, He gives us eyes to see God in this world that is nothing but cursed. And now we realize we live in a world that has both God and a curse. And that's where the church finds itself right now. Because we can look in the world and you can see the fingerprints of God. Creativity and art and love and compassion and justice and mercy. And we see these things in our world. But at the same time, at exactly the same time and sometimes in the same moment, in the same place, we see the curse. Violence, rage, injustice, abuse, Disease, addiction. And we come to the uneasy tension that the world lives, that we live with in this culture. We come to a place where we realize there is God here, but there's also that which God did not intend, and it's the curse, and that He is in the process of redeeming of, but it's the now and the not yet. We live here now, and we know that what's fully to come is not yet. And this is where we have a temptation. We are so tempted as the church to retreat into our bubble, into our fort, if we could just all band together and kind of link arms and hold on to one another just long enough and keep the world out and build our walls high enough and keep all that out there, we could find protection in here. And it would be safe. And what we could do is if we just have our little huddle all the way until heaven, we might be okay. Now, I felt that way. Anybody else ever felt that way? I'll tell you where I really started feeling that way is when I became a parent. Yeah, I'm pretty bold until it came to my kids all of a sudden. And then that uneasy tension started really coming up in me again. How do we live in a world? Well... I believe Jesus is calling us to be a particular kind of people. So I want to show you how we live in this world that understands that there's a second tree. And it's both God and a curse. And we've been given eyes. Your Bible teaches we've been given eyes to see in this world. So I want you to open your Bibles. You have them. John chapter 17. I think we do have this one on. What you have, Jesus is about to go 
to the cross. And on his way, he goes to the garden, and if you're familiar with the story, he takes some of his closest with him. And he's going to spend some time in prayer and connecting to his father. And they go with him to be a support, but they fall asleep. And they're not even present with him. But he goes off to pray, and he prays for them, and he prays for you and for me and for anybody through history that has followed the Lord Jesus. I want you to look at this prayer. John chapter, 15, John chapter 17, verse 15. My prayer is not, is not that you take them out of the world. And them, in particular, is about the disciples that are around him. But it's also for you and me. <clears throat> you know, that you do not take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Jesus is saying, I came from heaven. I didn't belong here. They don't belong here either. Sanctify them. And to sanctify is a big word that means to set apart for a purpose. You're sanctified for a purpose. You're set apart. You're called out. You're identified for a purpose. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to set them apart for a purpose by the truth. Your word is truth. As you, and don't miss this, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them, I set them apart myself, that they true may be truly sanctified. Just saying, just as you sent me, this is the Jesus model. You sent me, and when that sending was from heaven to this planet, I'm going to send them into the world too. And this is the model of Jesus' life. This is how he lived his life. And as you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see over and over Jesus engaging in the culture, engaging with people, not standing apart. But there was something about Jesus that when you looked into his eyes, the most unholy, unrighteous, ungodly, unchurched, make you kind of feel awkward kind of people, they kept being the closest to him. And let me pause right here, and if you are here tonight because somebody drug you here and said, hey, there's cookies, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know if you met Jesus, you would like Him. So you may be afraid of Jesus because if somehow you heard a preacher like me somewhere say something that Jesus wouldn't care for you. But if you met Jesus, you would like Him. I don't care what you've done in your life. You'd be drawn to Him. And this is the example that Jesus gives us. And so here's what I want to say. Here's the guiding principle, the one that I believe is our north star on how we can live with the world. And if you want to throw up this next slide, Jesus calls us to live distinct from the world, but not distant from it. Jesus calls us, those of us who have baptized into His name and say that He is Lord and Savior, calls us to live, and this is not easy, this is not simple, but I believe if we could get our minds around this and our lives around this as a church, that Jesus calls us to live distinct from the world, but not distant from it. This is what Jesus did. Jesus sat at the table, and He would eat with And that day when you ate with somebody, it was paramount to endorsing everything. I mean, that, that was how people viewed it. You, you were kind of afraid of guilt by association. You know, well, if you're seen with them, you may, they may think that you run with them or you agree with them. That was really strong in Jesus' day. And he would sit at the table with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. 
But every time he sat at the table with a prostitute, he was not distant. But you never, ever get the idea that he endorses the sex trade. Jesus would eat with tax collectors, some of the most despised in Rome. Did you ever notice that your Bible always says there were sinners and tax collectors? Have you noticed that? Like, like the worst sinner in the world could go to bed at night and put his head on the pillow and go, thank God I'm not a tax collector. It was like, like they were like a sub-level below that, you know, the, the basement level. He would eat with tax collectors, go into their home, be part of the party for them, and you never get the idea that he endorses the political agenda of Rome. All through your Gospels, he's with sinners, and you never get the idea that he looks at a sinner and goes, don't worry about the life you're leading. But he never drew distant from them. But he always remained distinct. Our temptation is to think that if we let the discussions come too close, if we get too involved, if it comes through our doors somehow, that we're going to be tainted, that that we're we're going to lose what we have. And again, I understand the temptation to put up the walls and try to keep it all out and, and live within a Christian bubble. I get it. But I believe that Jesus is calling us to be distinct but not distant from the world. Okay, let me make something practical here. When I ask the question of my church, what do you feel like is off topic or can't be talked about, it came back very strongly by many many of the cards I received. Scott, how do we deal with the gay issue? Now, in a group this size, I realize there may be someone here that either has a loved one, most likely there is, that has a loved one, and you struggle with this, and so I do not mean to insensibly walk on something that's very, very dear to your heart right now. But let me tell you how we answered this one at Western Hills. I can't answer it for MacArthur Park. Let me tell you how we answered it at Western Hills and how we are trying to put this idea of live distinct but not live distant from the world. Time and time again, I was asked, <clears throat> what's our stance? Where do we stand on, on that? Are we anti-gay? I don't think Jesus would appreciate His name being given as a reason to marginalize anybody that He died for. We are not anti-gay. We are not anti-anyone. We will welcome all into our midst because we do not feel the need to be distinct. I mean, we do not feel the need to be distant from anyone. But in the, in the moment of being um, not being distant, we will not give up our distinctiveness. And so, as I told Western Hills, what we will teach continuously and consistently at Western Hills is that full sexual expression is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. All others are called to abstinence. That's our place. That's our distinctness. But we do not push anybody away because they don't agree with that. We don't push anyone and say, you've got to change your behavior before you come in and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that was never a requirement that Jesus asked. We will be distinct. 
here is what we believe that the New Testament teaches about sexual expression. We will not vary from it. We will not change it. We will not alter it. But at the same time, we will not be the one that builds the walls and says, you're not welcome. A word of caution. This principle works both ways. Because I realize that there's folks at my church, and I was very aware of this in the day that I preached this, that may have struggled with alcohol. And the last thing I wanted to do, hey, Scott the preacher said, I can go drinking with my buddies because I'm not going to be distant. When I say, no, no, no. Not because I'm hung up on drinking, because there you lose your distinctiveness. You've given it up. Or how about this one? Hey, my secretary, who's not my wife, she's going through a hard time right now. I need to be there for her. I don't want to be distant. I want to be close to, to her and help her out. Let's go to lunch. No, no, no. You give up your distinctiveness. See, we will be distinct, but not distant. But not in the name of being close will we suddenly fail to be distinct. Now, this is tough. See, this is, this is why it's not every situation that the, the New Testament address on a completely practical level, but I believe that this principle from Jesus can be our guiding in 1 Peter, you have this, these words. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to go there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people. And he's talking to followers of Jesus. So if that describes you, you're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. Now, let me pause on one of those phrases. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. Now, if you've grown up in the church, unfortunately what we've done is we've given the priest a bad name because of what happens in the, the New Testament. Because there are like usually the priests and the Pharisees, you know, and you kind of hear the Jaws theme, you know, da-na-na-na, you know, every time they get mentioned. And so they get this bad rap, and they earned it. But their original intention wasn't to be some kind of, you know, the bad guys of the story. Priests were called by God to do what? To bless the people. To minister to the people. To bring God closer to the people. Now, they got that all messed up, and we're in, it's our temptation to do that too, where the priests started making God farther away from the people, but their God-designed intent was to bring God closer to the people and bless the people. And look at this, um, verse 11 and verse 12 with me. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives and don't miss the power of the next word. Not apart from, not in your little Christian corner, but among the pagans. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day He visits us. The priests were there to bless the people. Brothers and sisters, you and I are a royal priesthood called by God to bless the people. I said there were three trees. There was the one that was in the Garden of Eden. There was the cross. And there's coming a third tree. He began with the garden. Revelation tells us he ends with the city. 
And he gives us this very powerful descriptor of this. And I want you to go to Revelation. This is where we're going to come in for a landing. Not circle the airport, but come in for a landing. Revelation chapter 22. And I want you to see the power of this third tree. Revelation chapter 22, at the very beginning of it. Then the angel, and this is John, and he has been given an incredible vision. He's been actually taken to see what heaven is like. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river, this is a wild picture, but growing out of each side of the river, if you can picture this massive trunk and meeting in the middle, stood the tree of life. Here's our third tree. Bearing 12 crops of fruit. And whenever you hear the word 12, it's a clue. It's a, it's a signal. It means the people of God, the tribes of Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a reminder. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We're the crops. We're the one that the tree's bearing out. This tree of life is bearing out you and me in the church. And we're the leaves. And what's the purpose of the leaves? The healing of the who? The nations. Does anybody disagree that our nations could use some healing right now? It has so little to do with what the governments do. But it has everything to do with what the church does. So I believe from Genesis all the way through Revelation, the idea of God is that we are not that we are definitely a distinct people, but we're not distant because God uses us to heal the nations. And we live in a time when it's both curse and God. And it's all mixed in and it's hard to see it apart sometimes. But we know a time is coming. We are convinced and convicted of this that a time is coming where the curse falls away. And it's only God. And so what we do now is we keep bringing God into the dark places. And we're the ones, that royal priesthood, that keeps bringing Him forward and showing Him. We're on the mission of Jesus. That Jesus, the very one that could have stayed in heaven and said, I'm not going down there because I disagree with them. I don't like their lifestyle choices. God. But instead... For our healing, He stepped into the world. God in a bod. He dressed Himself up in skin and flesh and bone and walked among us. And aren't you grateful that He did? And now, He says, come with me. Not because you're holier than thou. Not because we're perfect. Not because we've got it all figured out but because our job is to heal the nations. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I will confess that this is perhaps easier to talk about than it is to actually do. Because I know the temptation to want to wall off the world and hide in the corner and just wait it out. 
So I pray that we would see the example of Jesus and follow the, the lead of Jesus and hear the words of Jesus. It says, I'm sending you into the world. Father, I know that at times we get off sight and we think that we're here to judge the world. But that's your job. And I pray, Father, that we'd be people that never, ever for a second give up our distinctness. Never lose sight of who you called us to be. But in that, we don't build distance because we feel safer at a distance. Well, I pray for the MacArthur Park Church that what I've seen so far in her and her future, that you would make her a mighty, mighty presence for Jesus in this community. That San Antonio would be changed because she's here. And that there are folks in our workplaces, in our families perhaps, in our schools, in our bands, in our sports teams, down the block from us, across the street from us, that need to hear about a Jesus that did not stay aloof and did not stay far away. And that you would use this body of Christ to change this community. Father, I pray this blessing on them. And I long for the day where we stand at the tree of life and we see you in all your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much.